postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising a white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. If you want your faith to come to life, if you want your home to come to life, if you want your marriage to come to life, if you want your church to come to life, a living encounter with Jesus is the answer. A church service is not the answer. Your favorite YouTube preacher is not the answer. Programs and events, a new book on theology, Sabbath school, elders, myself, we are not the answer. If you want living faith, there is only one source, Jesus, at the center of your life. So as we go through this sermon series, I really want to challenge and inspire you. Let, this, let these talks propel you into a whole new pursuit of God. Don't let it be just information. Take it home and say, God, how can this propel me, launch me into a new experience with you? All right, that's my introduction. Let's actually, let's get into the Bible now. You guys ready for that? Because I'm telling you, I'm ready. I'm so ready to get into the Bible. You guys have no, no idea how excited I am right now. No idea. I'm holding it in. But I'm, I'm, ready, to, I'm ready to pop. All right, go to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We're going to have fun this morning, amen? We're going to see some cool stuff about Jesus this morning. Oh, man, you guys have no idea. I'm trying to contain myself so So you guys can follow along. Luke chapter 15. If you're in Luke chapter 15, say, I'm there. The parable of the lost son begins in verse 11. But in order to understand the parable of the lost son... I first have to give you the context of the parable of the lost son. But the context of the parable of the lost son is not simply found in Luke chapter 15. What I actually have to do is I have to pull out of Luke 15, just like a bird, fly into the air and give a bird's eye view of Luke as a whole. Because unless you appreciate what's happening in the book of Luke, you can't really appreciate what's happening in the parable of the lost son. And so what I'm going to do today is we're we're going to set the context really, really well. We're going to look at the theme of Luke. And then next time we're going to start digging and mining some crazy stuff out of the parable of the lost son. So I told you to go to Luke 15. But really, we're going to be going even further back to explore this context. See, the book of Luke is undergirded by a theme. It's not just random stories. 
about Jesus. He did this and he did that and then he went over there. No, no, no. Luke has a concept. He has an agenda. He has an idea that he's trying to communicate through his gospel. And so the entire narrative of Luke is tied together by this golden thread. Like Ellen White uses that word, right? The golden thread. It's like this theme that strings the narrative together. And that theme is wild. You guys look at me like, what's the theme? We're going to get there. Father in heaven, walk us through Luke. And may his story serve this morning as a portal into the very center of your heart. Give us your Holy Spirit to help us navigate this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I got to move quickly here because if I don't, we will end up being here for hours. Luke chapter 4. I want you to go back to Luke chapter 4. You're in Luke 15, but go back to Luke chapter 4. I'm going to summarize the thematic structure of the book of Luke here, all right? I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I want to summarize it. The first three chapters of Luke are essentially an introduction to the rest of the story, and the story really kicks off in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, where Jesus goes to Nazareth, he walks into a synagogue, and he presents his ministry. He basically gets up, he grabs a scroll of the book of Isaiah, and he begins to tell people, this is what I am here for. And this is what he said. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. He says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus has just read from the scroll of Isaiah, right? He's read this text and his and, and then he closes it and he says, these words have been fulfilled in your presence today. He is announcing, right? He's announcing, he's like, my ministry is about to begin. My mission is about to begin. And this is what the whole thing is about. It's about the captives. It's about the blind. It's about the oppressed. It's about the poor. Not in an economic sense, but in a spiritual sense. He came to, to deliver the spiritually poor, the spiritually captive, the spiritually blind, the spiritually oppressed. And so he announces, follow with me here, he announces his mission on earth as an act of spiritual liberation. And the people are listening to him, and they're a bit confused. They're like, oh, you know, we like this guy, but... What exactly is he getting at? They're not sure. He's like, hey, wasn't this the guy, the carpenter's son? And they're kind of bantering back and forth with each other, trying to, trying to make sense of this Jesus because they don't fully get what Jesus was saying. And then Jesus turns around and makes it dummy proof. He says, all right, guys, since you didn't understand me the first time, let me make it really, really clear what my mission is all about. And so he clarifies his mission. And you know what happens the moment he clarifies his mission? Read a little bit further down. The people in the synagogue, the people in the church, grab him and try and throw him off a cliff. I've never preached a sermon where someone tried to throw me off a cliff. 
But what is, what is it that Jesus says that infuriates them so much? Look at verse 25. We're in chapter 4 still. Jesus begins to expand on his mission. And look at verse 25. Certainly, there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. There were lots of needy widows in Israel, guys. You, you remember that story? Yes, yeah, I remember that story. Lots of weedy, needy widows everywhere all over Israel. There was a famine in the land. But guess what, Jesus says? Elijah wasn't sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon, a pagan. Jesus says to the people in the synagogue, when God did something in Israel in Elijah's day, he bypassed Israel and went to a pagan. And then he goes on, he goes on, and he says, verse, verse, verse 26, um, uh, sorry, verse 27, and many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. In other words, a pagan. Oh, you guys aren't hearing me this morning. Mm-mm, mm-mm. You'll get it eventually. You'll get it eventually. Right? In other words, God, Jesus is saying, God didn't come for insiders. He came for outsiders. Jesus is announcing his ministry. He's announcing his mission. He's introducing what he's about to do. And he basically says to these people in the synagogue that he was here to liberate and set free the outcast, the ostracized, and the nobodies. In other words, Jesus is essentially saying to the people in the synagogue, I'm not here for you. And so they get really mad. And they grab him and they try and throw him off a cliff. Why were they so angry? Well, I've already explained a little bit of why they were so angry. But in order to fully appreciate why they were so angry, we have to keep following the story in Luke. Because what Luke reveals is one of the most scandalous things you'll ever see in scripture. See, Jesus survives the assassination attempt and immediately Luke begins to record a bunch of little stories. But they're not just random little stories that Luke is recording for the sake of recording. There is, there is, there is an idea, there's a theme that he's highlighting here. Luke begins to show Jesus doing exactly what he said he was there to do. So first of all, you know, as, as, as soon as Jesus survives his assassination attempt, Story number one, he heals a demon-possessed man. Who was this guy? Who didn't show up to the synagogue and pay his dues and fit the religious script of his society. Jesus goes, he heals the demon-possessed man. And then, and then he goes to the house of Peter's mother-in-law. Anybody ever find that story strange? This guy is here to, to restore, to be part of God's redemptive plan, to restore the whole universe. And, and, and he shows up in the house of a fisherman that nobody knew to heal a lady whose name we still don't know. A nobody. He heals his mother-in-law. And then he heals a leper. And then he's in Peter's house and this guy gets lowered through the roof. You, got, you, you remember the story for those of you who have read? He gets lowered through the roof and he heals this guy and he forgives his sins. 
And he clashes with the Pharisees. They get really angry at this, right? And, and it just goes on. And, and, and to make matters worse, not only is Jesus healing and forgiving all these nobodies, then the next story is he calls a tax collector named Levi Matthew. Tax collectors at that time were considered the scum of Israel. I'll tell you why in a few minutes. We'll get to that. He, 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 he calls this tax collector to be in his inner circle. Follow me. You're going to be one of my apostles. And so Matthew, Levi, follows him. You see the theme. Jesus is here. He's begun his mission, his, liber his spiritual act of liberation, and he's going after nobodies. He's going after the outcasts. He's going after the ostracized. He's going after the misfits, the ones who never show up to church. He's going after them. So Levi, the tax collector, throws a party. He's excited. He's like, somebody likes me. He invited me. Let me throw a party and celebrate. And they're partying away in chapter 5, verse 30. They're partying away, and the Pharisees show up. And, and here we see the theme expand. The Pharisees show up, and, and, and they say, verse 30, but the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why does your master eat and drink with such scum? That's what the text says. I didn't make that up. Other versions will say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're confused. They're like, wait a minute. You're claiming to be the son of God and you're claiming to be a rabbi and you're hanging out with them? And Jesus answers them. Verse 31, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. In other words, Jesus reiterates his message from the synagogue. He basically tells them, I haven't come for you. He was the Messiah, but he wasn't there for the know-it-alls, and he wasn't there for the religious elite, and he wasn't there for the holier-than-thou. He was there for the outcast who recognized his need of salvation. It would be like Jesus walking by our church today, and we're like, hey, Jesus, come on in. Preach a sermon. And he says, nope, I'm not here for you. I'm going to the rehab house. Nope, I'm not here for you. I'm going to the battered shelter. I'm going to the red light district. I came for them. And some of you sitting here like, oh, that makes me uncomfortable, pastor. I hope it does because that's how the Pharisees felt. I want you to get a bit of an appreciation for why they hated this guy so much, right? But if you think that this is uncomfortable, it actually gets worse. It gets worse. See, you, you have to see this through Jewish eyes. There's a, there's, a, there's a tendency within a lot of modern Christianity to bypass the Jewishness of the Bible. We've got to get past that tendency. The Bible's a very Jewish book. So you've got to see this through Jewish eyes in order to appreciate and see what the people in Jesus' day are seeing. See, Jesus is liberating sinners. He's gathering all the outcasts. 
and the misfits. So far, this is what's been happening in the book of Luke. Then, what happens next? Jesus appoints the 12 apostles. And after he appoints the 12 apostles, he preaches the sermon on the mount. Oh, see, you guys aren't getting it. Ah, okay, 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 okay. You got to see this through Jewish eyes. Jesus is liberating captives. He appoints 12 apostles. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount. You're a Jew. You're a rabbi. You're, you're a teacher of the law. You're a Pharisee. You look at that. You know the Old Testament really well. You look at that and you're like, huh. He's liberating captives. He got 12 apostles. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount. This is like Exodus. Where God liberates the Israelites. He, they leave Egypt under 12 tribes. And then they go to Mount Sinai where he gives them his law. Jesus, to the mind of the religious, to, of the religious people, Jesus is reenacting the Old Testament. He's reenacting Exodus. But here is where it gets really scandalous. What Jesus is essentially doing by reenacting Exodus, by, by, by liberating people and appointing 12 apostles that parallel the 12 tribes and going on the, on the mountain and preaching the Sermon on the Mount which is basically a, a manifesto of the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is essentially doing is he is creating a new Israel. But here's where it gets really scandalous. Jesus is creating a new Israel and he's not inviting the elite. He's only inviting the broken. You guys think Jesus was killed because he told a bunch of nice stories? He was threatening everything the religious class had established. He's creating a whole new Israel. And they're not invited. The story continues in Luke. After the Sermon on the Mount, it just keeps going. After the Sermon on the Mount, the very first thing that happens, centurion, a Roman, comes to Jesus. Hey, my servant is sick. Will you heal him? Sure, take me to your house. No, 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 you don't have to come to my house. Just say the word and I know it will happen. What does Jesus say to the centurion? I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Go back to his sermon in the synagogue. There were all these widows in Israel. God sent his prophet to a pagan. There were all these lepers in Israel. God sent his prophet to a pagan. Here we see this reenacted. Jesus to this Roman centurion who the people of Israel hated and despised the Romans. He's like, you have more faith than I've seen in the entire nation that God chose to be his people. This is deeply offensive. We say amen this morning, but these, th this is offensive. This is scandalous. This is the kind of stuff that gets you killed in the first century anyway. 
and he and then he preaches these really dangerous ideas. Like you, you, you follow the story and you, you end up at this deeply, we think it's so romantic and beautiful, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh-uh. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a slap in the face of the religious establishment. It was offensive. Deeply offensive. And so he's preaching these dangerous ideas like the Good Samaritan. And, and then as you follow the story, he finally gets to the point where he goes toe-to-toe with the Pharisees. And he opposes the Pharisees. And he goes so far as to openly denounce them. He's communicating to the religious class, I am starting a new kingdom and you aren't a part of it. And this keeps happening over and over and over Until we get to chapter 15, where the parable of the lost son is found. And if you really want to get the point of the parable of the lost son, if you really want to understand the gospel as it is expressed in the parable of the lost son, you have to understand this context. Jesus is liberating captives. He's creating a new Israel through them, and he's not inviting the elites. So now we're in chapter 15. We're not ready for the parable of the lost son yet. Parable of the lost son starts in verse 11. But I want you to come with me to verse 1 of Luke chapter 15. Verse 1. What does it say? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. There's the theme all over again. You can't miss it. It's the whole book of Luke is drenched in this idea. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. The theme is repeating. Um, now I promised you that I would explain this whole idea of tax collectors a little bit more. I've done it in previous sermons, but I'll do it in a different way today. Because I just finished watching a documentary this week, um, this Netflix documentary titled New York versus the Mafia. And it was a really interesting documentary because it it, it talked about how the FBI was finally able to take the mafia down in New York City in the 1970s. And um, one of the really shocking things about it is that when you watch, you know, or hear or read things about the mafia, historically, there's this impression that you get that they were these people who were sticking it to the man. And they were paving their own way and they were, you know, breaking the law and, and, and almost like a Robin Hoods. And that they only really ever got in the way or bothered people who got in their way. But as I watched this documentary, I learned that that actually wasn't the case. The mafia built their wealth not in casinos and prostitution and drugs. The mafia built their wealth by exploiting voiceless immigrants. So an example, Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, who who was a a mayor in New York City and very instrumental in bringing down the mafia, he shared a story that when he was a kid, his grandfather, who was a migrant from Italy, had come to New York City to try to make a life, had no money, poor. Grandfather starts a business as a barber in order to feed his family. The moment he made just a little bit of profit, the mafia showed up. Give us 30% or we'll burn your business down. 
So in the movies, in the books, it almost makes it seem like these guys are Robin Hoods who are just sticking it to the government. But really, they built their power off of exploiting the weak and the voiceless. Members of their own community. Migrants from their own country. And this is essentially what a tax collector was in Jesus' day. A tax collector was a traitor, a Jewish traitor to his own people. They exploited the poverty of, the, of their fellow Jews. They profited off of the suffering of their fellow Jews. And they lined their own pockets while serving Rome. No one liked the tax collector. They were the scum of the earth. And yet here we read Luke chapter 15, verse 1. As the theme of Luke repeats, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. They loved being around him. Because Jesus came for them. But see, the scandal of Luke is more than Jesus loves sinners and he came for them. The scandal of Luke is deeper than that. I want you to appreciate the scandal. It's more than Jesus loves sinners and he came for them. No, the scandal of Luke is that it's through them that he's building a new Israel. That's the scandal. It's easy to say, oh, God loves sinners. It's a whole other thing to say, God is using sinners to build a whole new kingdom. And so the sinners loved being around Jesus. I want to pause here for a moment before we, before we you know, move on and, and, and close. I'm moving a little quick here. Um, I want to pause here for a moment to make a painful but necessary statement, something for us to ponder and wrestle with and, you know, and pray about. And it's this. You really have to get suspicious in keeping with Jesus' pattern and Jesus' rhythm. You really have to get suspicious when your church has way too many saints and hardly any sinners. Or when sinners don't fit in, or don't like your church, or they don't like you. I meet way too many people who act like the church should be constructed and engineered to keep the saints happy. And you can do that if you want, but that's not Jesus. Jesus did the opposite. And so when sinners don't fit in or when sinners don't like your church or worse, when sinners don't like you, you can be sure you are out of step with God's rhythm. And you can call it whatever you want, but don't call it the gospel. And so wrestle with these questions. Do sinners love to come to this church? Let me make it more personal. How many sinners love to be around you? Are all your friends Adventist? Do they all look like you, dress like you, think like you, live like you? And it's a very serious question because, you know, most, most Adventists have less non-Adventist friends the longer they're in church. It's like I've been in church for 20 years. I, I, I don't have anybody in my life that isn't, everybody's Adventist. Most of us aren't attractive to the lost. We only attract the saints who already agree with us. And whatever 
I've concluded this. Whatever being like Jesus is, it involves being the kind of person sinners love to be around. And sometimes I think, sometimes I think the reason why we struggle with this, the reason why we struggle with this is because I think oftentimes we forget that we are sinners. We forget that were it not for grace, where would we be? I love, I love that. You guys heard that song, uh, Were It Not For Grace? It's an old song, you know. Were it not for grace, where would I be? Something like that, you know. It's like we, we forget that if it wasn't for grace, we would be lost helplessly. You know, un, 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 relentlessly lost. Been in church for a while and we've gotten used to kind of doing the right thing and going through the right motions and following the right rituals. And little by little you start to forget you're pretty messed up too. And so the story of Luke isn't only uncomfortable for the Pharisees in Jesus' day, it's uncomfortable for us because the narrative claims that Jesus came for sinners and that he came not just because he loves them, but it's because through them he will build his kingdom. Not through the religious elite, but through the broken and contrite heart of the sinner who knows, I need a savior. See, now that story of Jesus and the, you know, the story Jesus tells where the Pharisee is like, oh, thank you that I'm not like the other sinners and the publican who's beating his chest, forgive me. That story makes a little bit more sense. This is what Jesus is after. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they oppose this, right? They oppose this. So look at verse 2, right? Verse 1, the, the, the tax collectors and the sinners are all gathering around Jesus. They want to hear Jesus. Look at verse 2. The Pharisees, and the, tax, uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law begin to murmur among themselves saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The same theme just repeats. It's almost as if Luke is just, he's over and over again. He's like, I want you to get this. I'm going to make this so dummy proof. I'm just going to repeat it over and over again. For I don't remember how many chapters, 20-something chapters. I'm just going to repeat the same thing over and over again until you get it. So the Pharisees are complaining. And they make the same complaint in Luke chapter 15 that they made back at Matthew Levi's party. Why does your teacher eat with these people? The same exact complaint. And they're looking and they're confused because Jesus has engaged in this project. And they're not dummies. They can see it. They know their Bible. They know their Old Testament. Jesus has engaged this project of recreating Israel. And he's recreating Israel through the nobodies of the world. And his project is gaining steam. And it's beginning to threaten the political stability that the ruling class is attempting to achieve with Rome. He threatened everything they had constructed. The crazy thing is Jesus didn't threaten it with force. He threatened it with love, with inclusivity. So now, let's set the stage here. 
because we're going to be diving into the parable of the lost son in detail from this point forward. But, but now we have the setting. We have the, the full-on context of Jesus' mission. And now we have the setting. Jesus is sitting in this house, and he has an audience. And in verse 1, the audience is the non-religious. And then in verse 2, we are introduced to an extra group in the audience who are the religious. He has around him the disreputable, the disreputable pardon, and the ethical, the religious folk and the non-religious, the ones who keep all the rules and whose job it is to make sure everyone else keeps the rules, and the ones who can't seem to get it right. They're all around him. And the religious are looking at him and they're confused. They're like, why? Why? He claims to be a rabbi. He claims to come from God. God is holy. Why is he eating with these people? Now, we can be a bit rough on the Pharisees, and I think that's justifiable, but we can also try and understand why they were thinking this way. See, we got to go back a little bit to the, to the Old Testament again to try and make sense of the Pharisees' thinking process. See, in the Old Testament, God has called this nation of Israel as a special nation. They're going to reveal his character to all the nations. And he places them in the land of Canaan and gives them his law and his instructions and basically says, I want you to be a distinct people, a unique people. And I want you to reveal my character to the world around us. The nations are going to come and they're going to see and they're going to want to know what's going on here. And, and this was Israel's this was Israel's mission. This was Israel's objective. But Israel rebelled against God and assimilated with the pagan cultures that were around them. Now, this isn't merely a surface assimilation. If, if you look at Israelite culture and Canaanite culture on the surface, they were pretty much the same, had similar hairdos, similar things they wore. But on the depth, when you, when you go beneath into the character, the nation of Israel was meant to be entirely different. First of all, they weren't supposed to have a king. And if he did, he wasn't supposed to amass wealth. And there were supposed to be no concubines. They were to worship no idols. And their social structure was modeled after the Sabbath and Jubilee. And justice and fairness were meant to be the understructure of their entire court system. And their rituals were meant to point to God's self-sacrifice and not the idolatrous systems that surrounded them, which pointed to man's sacrifice. But over time, they began copying these nations and until they became just as corrupt and crooked as the people around them. In fact, I think his book of Chronicles says they became worse than all the nations that God had driven out before them. And so God judges them. He sends in the Babylonians. The Babylonians displace them, take them into exile. And through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, you're going to be there in exile for 70 years and then I'm going to bring you back. You're going to rebuild Jerusalem. So the 70 years end, the captivity ends, the Jews come back to Jerusalem, they rebuild, but something happened when they returned. In an effort to never again disobey God and end up in exile, they became obsessed with the law. So the pendulum went from assimilating and being like everyone else way far in the other direction so that by the time Jesus came, came, comes along, the Israelite community is so concerned about making sure they never go astray again that they become fanatical about the rules. They shun anyone who they perceive as unholy. 
They detach themselves from Gentiles and pagans. They won't even walk through Samaria. They'll take a two-day journey around it. Why? Because just walking through, I might get contaminated. They judge, disown, and reject anyone who doesn't fit the script they have created of what it means to be holy. And so God has basically become this formula of black and white, right, and wrong. And having grown up in that religion, the Pharisees simply cannot fathom how a holy God would come to earth and construct a new Israel without them. And instead, he's using sinners. So they're all muttering amongst themselves. Why would a holy God associate with such unholiness? And the tragedy is, thousands of years later, we do the same today. In our attempt to not be like the world, we go to the opposite extreme. We obsess over rules to the point that we become repulsive to people around us instead of attractive. And so with this audience before him, the sinners and the so-called saints... And with this question, why does your teacher eat with these people? And with this context of this new Israel that Jesus is constructing, with all that floating in the background, Jesus tells three stories. The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how we arrive at Luke 15, 11. There was a man who had two sons. Now, I'm not going to go into that today because we've gone on long enough. So let's, let's wrap this up. See, the context to all three parables is an audience made up of sinners who were ostracized by the church and religious folk who did the ostracizing. And so as Jesus begins to share the gospel through these parables... He is revealing the gospel not only for those who are lost, but for those who think they are found. Which means that the gospel is not only for new believers or for the drunkard in the bar. The gospel is for pastors and elders and church boards just the same. For the lost and for the so-called found. Now, I'm not going to be unpacking all three parables because we won't have the time for that. Uh, starting next time, um, when I'm back, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll focus on the parable of the lost son because it, it's got way more detail than the other. So we'll hone in on that and, and pull out some cool stuff from that. But before we fully dive in, I want to close with this. All three of these parables follow the same exact pattern. All three of them. There's a relationship. The object of the relationship is lost. A search takes place, the lost object is found, and there's a party. All three parables follow the same exact theme. Guy loses his sheep, he goes out to find it. And then in verse seven, he, verse 6, he's having a celebration because he found his lost sheep. Verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Jesus is repeating the theme. He's repeating the theme. I came for them. Lady loses her coin, sweeps the whole house, finds the coin. Verse 9, throws a feast. Jesus closes like this. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels over God, uh, of God over one sinner who repents. I came for them. 
And then he gets to the parable of the lost son. Lost son returns. Verse 23, the father is ecstatic. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. All three stories, the thing that is lost is desired by the one who lost it. The man desires the sheep, so he risks everything to find it. And the woman desires the coin, so she works hard to find it. The father desires the son, so he longs for his return. And here's the thing. When it comes to experiencing the gospel, because that's what we're talking about here. Right? We're talking about the gospel. When it comes to experiencing the gospel, this is where we must begin. Now, I'm a bit of a theological nerd, so I've been in all the conversations. People who like to, you know, take, t- take the gospel and turn it into a Greek formula that you can dissect and they'll say things like, hey, if you want to understand salvation, you first have to understand sin. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. But here's, here's what I would say. If you want to understand salvation, it's, it's not about going back to sin. It's about going back to how God feels about you. You can't understand the gospel unless you first understand the way God feels about you. This is why the book Steps to Christ doesn't start with the chapter, The Sinner's Need of Christ. It starts with the chapter, God is Love. You have to first identify, how does God feel about you? How does God relate to sinners? How does God relate to broken people? That's the first question. And once we answer that, we can begin to unpack the beauty of the gospel. And so we begin here. We begin here, church, that you, sinner, you with your hidden sins, with your shameful secrets, with your messed up life and your insecurities and your doubts, yes, you, God wants you. You are the sole focus of his supreme desire. But it's more than this. It's more than this. I don't want you to leave this morning thinking, oh, God loves me, I'm a sinner. It's more than this. It's more than this. The context of Luke is not merely that God loves sinners and eats with them. The context of Luke is that God is constructing a new kingdom through you. That he has a purpose for your life, messed up as it might be. That he has a calling over you, filthy as you might be. That he has a promise for you, disgusting as you might think you are. That God is going to rebirth this world and he's doing it through you. Not the religious elite. He bypasses them. They don't get to come in. It's through the broken who know their need. Of salvation. So no matter how messed up you are here this morning, God has ordained that through you, he is going to build his kingdom. He has a remarkable plan for your life. And before you can have a real religion, before you can have a real faith, before you can have a real Christianity, you must know this in the depths of your soul. God wants you. I'm going to close now. The theme in Luke, it confronts us in a lot of ways. The first is this. You belong no matter where you've been. You belong not only as the recipient of God's love, but as the means through which he is establishing his kingdom, his new Israel, his church. Now, I know that as a church, that's not often the message that we give. Because we make people feel that 
In order for you to be a part, in order for you to belong, you got to jump through all these hoops and you got to prove all this stuff and you got to agree with all these things. And then finally, you reach the finish line and it's like, hey, you can be. That's not how Jesus was operating. And this is, why this, this is why this narrative is so scandalous. This is why it's so offensive. This is why it's so scary. This is why it's so uncomfortable. This is why he was killed. Well, one of the reasons. Because nothing Jesus said fit nicely into what was considered religiously acceptable. And maybe you feel like you're messed up and you feel like you don't belong. I talk to people all the time to say, look, I, you know, I love God and I want to pursue him, but I just can't fit the religious script that the church expects of me. You don't have to fit the script. That's a separate sermon, but we got to get rid of that script and recognize that no matter how messed up you are here this morning, you are who God wants to build his kingdom through. And if you give him a chance, if you give him a chance, he will restore your sight. He will break your chains. He will set you free, not to a religion, but to a whole new life and experience. Because this is what Jesus came to do, to set the captives free. And the second theme of Luke that confronts us is this, that for those of us who are perhaps more cozy with the religious elite, there is only one way that we can be a part of this kingdom because the kingdom's not for the religious elite. There's only one way that we can be a part of this kingdom. We have to repent of our pride. We have to recognize our brokenness. We have to renounce our accolades. Like, you know, like Paul, he's like, I had all this, this giant resume of how awesome I was, you know, Pharisee, and I came from this tribe, and I had all, all this giant resume. I got rid of it. It's garbage. I traded it just to know Jesus. Because the kingdom of heaven isn't for the elites, it's for the humble. Jesus didn't come for the healthy, he came for the sick. And the way to enter his kingdom is to put aside your religious, impressive resume and say, God, here I am, I'm sick too.